0: Hello everyone and welcome to Scream Scene, the horror movie podcast where we watch every horror movie ever made in chronological order and then we rank them on a list from best to worst. I'm Ben.
1: I'm Sarah. Thanks for joining us today. How are you doing today, Ben? Uh
0: I've certainly had better days. I, I would prefer not to be wrestling with the plumbing in our apartment.
1: Listeners probably are used to hearing our pipes in that background of episodes. Yeah. And uh, we'll see if this recording actually picks up our kitchen sinks backing up for the 12th time. Like, how many times? Jeez. Eh,
0: all the time.
1: All the time.
0: Mm-hmm.
1: What are we watching today, Ben?
0: We are watching The Bat from 1926, directed by Roland West whose work we have seen previously. He directed The Monster, starring Lon Chaney, from a couple Mm -hmm. episodes ago. Mm -hmm. And The Bat is a film very much in a similar genre, as it is based on the Broadway play, which we briefly discussed in that episode Mm -hmm. as being sort of the inspiration for this old spooky house genre.
1: Yeah, specifically in America. Yes. (laughs) Yes. (laughs) Yeah, the play The Bat uh, was first produced in 1920 mm-hmm. and it's actually adapted from a novel by Mary Roberts Rinehart called The Circular Staircase. Okay. Yeah.
0: So it was a novel and then it was a play and then it was a movie. Not quite. Okay.
1: <laughs> yeah, let me tell you a little bit about this author first cuz Mary Roberts Rinehart is actually really fucking cool. Oh. Okay. <laughs> Reinhardt lived from 1876 to 1958, she's American. She graduated public school at 16 and then enrolled in nursing school, graduating from there in 1896, and marrying a physician she met there, uh, Dr. Stanley Marshall Reinhardt. She only started writing after they lost all of their savings in the market crash of 1903. Okay. She started writing as a side job, you know, uh, at 27.
0: Weird. That's an odd side job to pick up. Like, I want to imagine the days when, like, oh, I need some quick cash, I'll just become a writer. Like, (laughs) that doesn't seem accurate anymore.
1: Four years after she started writing, she wrote The Circular Staircase. Um, She wrote it through 1907, and it was published in 1908. The Circular Staircase features a wealthy widow protagonist who solves a series of strange, mysterious crimes Mm -hmm. at her summer home that she rented with her adopted niece and nephew.
0: Sort of a Miss Marple, (laughs) murder-she-wrote, old lady-solves-crimes kind of
1: thing? I guess so, Mm -hmm. but what's kind of notable about The Circular Staircase is that it established the had-I-but-known genre of mystery writing. (laughs)
0: Okay, you're gonna have to explain What that means.
1: So it starts off uh, with the protagonist, usually an older woman, wondering aloud what they could have done differently. And so it starts out with this feeling of dread of like, oh man, what could have happened? What could she have done differently to avoid whatever outcome that is being set up?
0: So like in the context of like a first person narrative where that character's telling us the story after the fact, like had I but known the killer was behind me the entire time. Yeah. Okay.
1: So... In a way, without the circular staircase, we would not have Iron Man 3's structure.
0: I don't think that's true.
1: (laughs) So that's the circular staircase, and she wrote a lot. That was kind of the novel that really catapulted her into... I guess we'll say stardom mm-hmm. for an author, Yeah. Um, and she regularly wrote for magazines, in addition to many other highly successful books and plays, including the 1909 play Seven Days that she wrote with Avery Hopwood, mm-hmm. who she would later approach to help adapt Circular Staircase into The Bat. Okay. The Circular Staircase was actually adapted into film in 1915. Oh, okay. And she started thinking about adapting the novel into a play in 1917.
0: So it was so it was a novel and then they made it into a film called The Circular Staircase and then they adapted it into this play called The Bat?
1: Yeah. Huh. Okay,
0: <laughs> interesting. So what happened with the the film then? Was it successful or did Ah. Anybody watch it?
1: Presumably some people watched it, so she started thinking about what it would be like to have a play where like, the mystery solved at the end. Honestly, I assumed you would have more info about the film.
0: <laughs> so the film version of The Circular Staircase, um, she sold the film rights to a company for an apparently very small amount of money. She wasn't paid very much for it. And it was released in 1915, received lukewarm reviews. Mm. Uh, One critic wrote that it followed the novel too closely to be effectively cinematic. Okay. And it is now a lost film.
1: So I wonder if, because that film, for lack of a better word, was a failure, Mm -hmm. if that's why she, because she had written plays before, if she had started thinking about how to adapt it to a play uh, and have it deviate enough from the novel in order for it to be successful in that different medium.
0: Sure. And I think, you know, it's probably easier to adapt from a play to film than from novel to film. So it's almost like, if I can make it a play first, then a film version of that play might be more successful.
1: Mm-hmm. mm-hmm. She had started looking to adapt the novel into the play in 1917, but the play didn't get produced until 1920. Okay. So guess what the delay was?
0: Um...
1: World War One. So she worked as a war correspondent at the Belgian Front for the Saturday Evening Post. Oh, cool. Which is super cool, uh, because she would have... Already had her three sons by this point, and okay. you know, being an independent woman and such. <laughs> <laughs> being this war correspondent obviously would slow down her productivity in mm-hmm. adapting this, and so she decided to approach Avery Hopwood, who they, you know, they had worked previously, to help her complete the adaptation while she was away in Europe. Okay. Um, Avery was like, yeah, that's a cool idea, but didn't want to start working on it until Reinhardt came back, and they together they completed the adaptation in 1920. So the reason that they changed the name was uh, because the rights were still to the 1915 film.
0: Oh, okay.
1: Yeah, so with the legal disputes over the name, uh, they decided to change the play's name to The Bat. Mm-hmm. Um, they did have to change characters' names and a bit of the plot as well, just, mm-hmm. you know, you have to do that. By and large, The Bat is pretty much the circular staircase. Okay. So The Bat, first produced in 1920, features a wealthy spinster having guests at her summer home, which is rumored to be haunted, and they are stalked by a bat-like creature. Oh. Uh, Okay. Later turns out to be a guinea mask. Yeah. <laughs> the bat was hugely successful. They had 867 performances on Broadway. Wow. They had six separate road companies touring the U.S. after it ended. Damn. And in 1922, it also opened in London, where it ran for 327 performances. Gosh. It was revived twice on Broadway uh, in later years, and it even had a 1926 novelization, which is <laughs> hilarious. <laughs> uh,
0: the novel based on the play based on the novel.
1: Exactly. Uh-huh. Uh And, of course had three film adaptations. Yes. The Bat, not including the 1915 adaptation of the novel.
0: Yes.
1: (laughs) (laughs) And just to kind of remind people from the monster episode, The Bat, it fits in this horror-comedy genre. Uh Um, It's described as a comedy-thriller play, and it has a specific comic relief character. Uh But it still fits within the horror genre. So Mary Roberts Reinhardt continued to have an amazing life. In 1929, uh, she helped her sons establish a publishing house called Farrar and Reinhardt. It's now currently known as Reinhardt and Company. Mm-hmm. She helped establish the idea of the butler did it. Okay. <laughs> with her 1930 novel *The Door*, the phrase isn't in the novel, but the butler commits the crime. Gotcha. And yeah. subsequently, you know, establishes that trope. Okay. Interesting. She later survived breast cancer through a radical mastectomy. Okay. And she openly discussed and wrote about it in the 1947 issue of Ladies Home Journal. Okay. Uh, And that's during a time where you do not discuss such things, especially womanly health things. Mm -hmm. This article, titled I Had Cancer, she encouraged women to do self-breast exams. Mm Mm-hmm. She received an honorary doctorate in literature from George Washington University. She died at age 82 in 1958. Clearly a very full life, and I love that she just went into writing just to make you know, some quick cash and became so well-known and established these had-I-known-and-Butler-did-it tropes.
0: Mm-hmm. The film version that we're going to be watching from 1926, as you pointed out, it's the first of the film adaptations of the play, even though the novel, the play is based on, had already been turned into a film.
1: Yeah. It's
0: directed by Roland West, as I said at the top of the show, who we had previously seen directing The Monster a couple episodes ago. Uh, For more information on Roland West, I would recommend that listeners check out that episode. But to summarize what's relevant here, West was known in Hollywood in the 1920s for bringing this German expressionist style of filmmaking with heavy shadows and elaborate sets and stylized costumes and compositions and so on to his filmmaking. It's one of the reasons why the monster was a film we chose to cover on the podcast due to that sort of unique look that it had. Mm -hmm. Um, He amps all that up in The Bat. So The Bat has even more of that flavor. He had been waiting for the film rights to The Bat Mm -hmm. uh, since it had really come out on Broadway in 1920. In fact, he had basically made The Monster as a practice film (laughs) uh, while he was waiting for the rights to The Bat to clear up. Which is sort of funny because The Monster itself was based on a play that had come out after to the bat as a kind of (laughs) cash-in on the bat's popularity. Yeah. In the bat, uh, he continues to experiment with style and technique and pushing those German Expressionist elements that he had used in the monster. You know, and he became very famous for these stylistic elements. It made him one of the top directors in Hollywood in the 1920s. And when he received a lot of critical acclaim for these stylistic touches, he claimed to have invented them himself
1: Mm. uh,
0: when he had, in fact, appropriated them from German cinema. Uh, For other shitty things about West, again, you can take a look at our monster episode. Oh, boy. The film was a big hit, both commercially and critically. West made the cast and crew of the film shoot the whole movie at night. He told the studio's publicity department that this was to put everyone in the right mood to simulate these dark deeds. But the real reason, in fact, was to avoid interference from studio executives. (laughs) It's much harder for the boss to, like, stop in at the set and give you notes and tell you what to do when he's asleep.
1: Yeah. Did they film it in a studio or was it on location?
0: No, these are on sets, this film. West was very interested in having sets and controlling composition and experimenting with camera and lighting. He was more interested in the technical aspects of filmmaking than the, the storytelling. He is reputed to have spent most of his time and energy on the film, on the lighting, the composition, the sets, the mood, and the atmosphere, and to have essentially left his actors to their own devices... According to some accounts, basically he would call action uh, and then immediately just turn to the director of photography and begin planning the next camera setups until it was time to call cut.
1: I guess it's silent, right? So you don't need to call quiet on set.
0: No. uh, (laughs) So you can just talk through the whole shot. But yeah, he just wasn't. He didn't care what his actors were doing once the lights were set up and the framing was established and the camera move was practiced and, you know, he knew what it was going to look like. Didn't really care what the actors did once he called action. The film cinematographer, uh, with whom West worked very closely to establish its look, uh, was a man named Arthur Edison. And he had been working as a cinematographer since 1911 and was one of the founding members of the American Society of Cinematographers in 1919. Before this, he had shot a lot of big films like Three Musketeers, Robin Hood, and Thief of Baghdad, all of which were adventure films starring Douglas Fairbanks. Mm. He also shot the 1925 version of The Lost World, which featured pioneering stop-motion special effects from Willis O'Brien. After shooting The Bat, Edison would go on to shoot films like All Quiet on the Western Front, Frankenstein, The Old Dark House, The Invisible Man, Mutiny on the Bounty, The Maltese Falcon, and Casablanca. Wow. Yeah.
1: Is he related to Thomas Edison? No,
0: their names are spelt completely differently.
1: Okay. The reason I wasn't sure is because you had mentioned earlier how Thomas Edison had mm. owned a production company or yeah. something like that. Yeah, he made So noise. I wasn't sure if it was like no, a, a family yeah. thing. Yeah, okay. different guy completely. Cool.
0: Yeah, uh, Arthur Edison was considered to be a master craftsman in Hollywood cinematography. So while West and Edison were working on the look of the film and ignoring the actors, uh, The Bat has a very large cast. There's a lot of characters and actors in this film.
1: That always bodes well.
0: It's largely because the film is structured as like a, a mystery about who is The Bat. And so because of that, the movie has a ton of ancillary characters so that there's all these people going around doing all kinds of things so that you, you can never guess, like, who the bat is going to turn out to be, right? Yeah. One of the film's stars, Jack Pickford, who was the younger brother of Canadian actress Mary Pickford, mm. who was basically one of Hollywood's biggest stars from 1911 to 1933. Uh, Mary Pickford was a big deal. Yeah. Jack was not the actor that Mary was in terms of talent. Despite being promoted by publicity departments as the boy next door, while his sister was promoted as America's sweetheart. Yeah. Jack's private life consisted largely of drinking, partying, drug abuse, and womanizing. His career was largely the result of riding on his sister's coattails. His life is filled with a lot of sleazy and questionable incidences, mm-hmm. uh, incidents and uh, episodes from his three different marriages, which ended in... If I have the order right, I believe it's death, divorce... Divorce?
1: Mm-hmm. Anyways,
0: we don't really have time to go into the myriad details of his uh, life, but listeners can maybe look them up on their own if they're curious. To Suffice to say that... His career was on the downslope by the time this film was made. He's most likely in the movie just because of the studio that was producing it. The Bat was produced by United Artists. If listeners aren't familiar with United Artists, it's a studio that was founded in 1919 by D.W. Griffith, Charlie Chaplin, Mary Pickford, and her husband Douglas Fairbanks as a way for them to control their own content. Okay, Uh,
1: like the Image Comics of its day.
0: Yeah, yeah, exactly. (laughs) Um, They were tired of movie studios controlling them and their work under contract, so they joined together to create their own studio to produce their own work. Now, because it was basically just a studio made to produce the work of these four people, it tended to produce less than the major studios. It averaged only about five films a year. Makes sense. That seems like a lot of movies maybe to us now per year, (laughs) but like as we've talked about, like movie studios just cranked this stuff out back in the day, right? So five films a year is not much. Mm -hmm. Now these films tended to get a high level of critical and commercial success, especially Douglas Fairbanks's adventure films, you know, Mask of Zorro, Thief of Baghdad, but because United Artists was just a production studio, you know, they didn't have a theater chain, and because they were making only five movies a year with for just these four people, even with their critical and commercial success, they started to kind of run into financial trouble. So by 1924, the shareholders of United Artists, the, uh, the four main people, invited a producer named Joseph Schenck to come in and run the company and bring new talent to the company and start producing more films and more kinds of films with different people. One of the people that Shank brought in was his brother-in-law, Buster Keaton.
1: Yeah.
0: As well as independent producer Samuel Goldwyn, who had bailed from Metro-Goldwyn-Mayer after Metro had bought... His company, Goldwyn Pictures, and then the other independent producer they brought in was this young maverick who had made money from his father's tools company uh, named Howard Hughes.
1: That's a big deal.
0: <laughs> the Bat was one of these, you know, expanded types of movies where they were, they were trying to make more movies uh, than they had in the past, uh, you know, coming out in 1926, a couple of years after Shanghai took over. But I suspect that even though Jack Pickford's career was on the downslope, you know, the reason he's in this movie is his sister's still one of the owners of the company, right? Yeah. So one of the effects of The Bat being such a success when it came out as a film is, as you mentioned earlier, it had a few remakes. Mm -hmm. Significantly, the second movie version of The Bat, which came out in 1930 called The Bat Whispers, is also directed by Roland West. Uh, it's just basically they remade it in sound. Both this original The Bat from 1926 and The Bat Whispers uh, contain elements that uh, comic book artist Bob Kane credited for the visual look of the character Batman.
1: Wait, so the sound version is called The Bat Whispers? Yes. That is great. Yeah. I'm very... I, Whoever made that decision gets the Saravo stamp of approval. <laughs> so how can people watch the movie along with us? Is it in the public domain?
0: Yes, uh, it is in the public domain. Despite being such a large success in its day, mm. The Bat has really not seen a lot of respect on home video. Oh. So there are two DVD releases of The Bat. There's one from a company called Sinister Cinema that is utter garbage. Basically, it's a transfer to DVD from a VHS tape release of The Bat. Okay. So it's just, you're just watching a VHS tape on DVD. Mm -hmm. And that VHS tape release used a 16 millimeter home rental print as its source. So it's already, like, not a very good print source, and then it's VHS, and then that's just on a DVD. Also, the Sinister Cinema release features an SC watermark in the corner of the picture, and has no musical score. It's real bad.
1: No, You can't watch a silent film without music. Like, it's no. unbearable. Yeah.
0: There is another DVD release, thankfully, but it's by Alpha Video, who I've mentioned on previous episodes as being a garbage company that does no work to put out good DVD releases. Their DVD release of the bad is mildly better. Uh, It's taken from the exact same VHS tape, (laughs) but it doesn't have the watermark and it actually has some music included. So that's something. Okay. Uh, So that's the version that I'm going to be linking to on our YouTube playlist and the version we'll be watching today.
1: So if people would like to see this playlist that we're talking about, you can go to our website, screamscenepodcast.tumblr.com. For now, You're going to hear a brief musical interlude and we will be back after the intermission and discuss the film.
0: See you on the other side, everybody.
1: Welcome back to Scream Scene. We just finished watching The Bat from 1926, and this is the greatest movie ever made. Mm, no, it's not. <laughs> no, it's not. But I really, really enjoyed this. Okay. Yeah.
0: That's interesting. I, I had a good time. Neither of us have seen this before, is maybe worth saying. It was, it was definitely better than I thought it was going to be, especially after watching the monster. That's sort of where I was judging this movie against, and I had definitely a good time. I don't think I enjoyed it as much as you did, though. You really (laughs) had a good time watching this movie.
1: Yeah. We'll try to do the plot summary. It's convoluted as heck.
0: Rather purposefully so. Like, the, the movie's designed so that there's so many characters with so many subplots going on that the movie's a magic trick, right? Yeah. Where it's all about making you look over here so that you don't know what's going on over there.
1: So the film opens with some really amazing shots.
0: Yeah, the, the opening of this movie is is pretty great.
1: And it's the bat trying to steal these jewels and he leaves like these calling cards
0: and this is in the city and we get all these shots of the bat running over rooftops and like climbing up grappling hooks and stuff and and it's worth saying that like you can you can see the batman influence pretty early on the cops in the city are too close to catching him so he's decided to take a break in the country mm-hmm. and he goes to this bank
1: to steal what would be his vacation fund basically yeah because he sees someone already stealing the money he follows the dude to this country house yes and we see the burglar of the bank. Yeah, we just called him the shadow because he was, like, in a trench coat with, like, a bandana over his face. Uh, we see him sneak into the mansion and deposit the money somewhere. And we see the bat follow. So it's like, hey, well, why... What's going on with this house? Like, why is it this house? Mm-hmm. This country house is owned by the guy who owns the bank. His name is Corley Fleming. And he's also recently been... Missing or presumed dead or something?
0: Yeah, there's like a newspaper that we see the front page of that says that Courtley Fleming has been pronounced dead in Colorado, and also that the police are looking for Brooks Bailey, who was the cashier at the bank.
1: At this house that is being rented out is Ms. Cornelia Van Gorder, who is an older woman who just knits all the time and makes uh, sassy comments, so she's my favorite.
0: Yeah, she like, it doesn't matter what's happening in this movie, she's pretty much much almost never fazed by anything and is just continually knitting just really nonchalantly.
1: And she's staying there with her niece, Miss Dale Ogden, and their maid, Lizzie Allen, and the butler that came with the place, Yeah. who's credited as Billy the butler, but people only refer to him as a racial slur.
0: He's Japanese. He's got some very, like, unfortunate makeup or facial hair choices going on that I think...
1: Yeah, it's all makeup and prosthetics.
0: It's it's really there to try and, like, give him a kind of subhuman appearance and upsetting. Yeah, everyone's very racist towards him, but like, in terms of like him as a character...
1: He serves to act as a misdirect when spooky things happen. Yeah,
0: or to introduce many of the myriad characters who show up at this house throughout the movie. And then Lizzie, the maid, she's sort of the primary comic relief character. She gets a lot of the kind of facial comedy in terms of her reactions to things. She's constantly screaming at the slightest little thing. And, yeah. And tends to suspect everyone in the movie of being the bat at one point or another and
1: she's actually pretty great
0: she was funny I enjoyed her like generally speaking that type of humor doesn't go very far with me same Um, but she was she was enjoyable
1: yeah, so they're staying at this summer home. We see the. We kept calling him the shadow because he was like in a trench coat with like a bandana over his face, who is the burglar of the bank. Uh, we see him sneak into the mansion and deposit the money somewhere. And we see the bat follow. Mm-hmm. Um, so it's like, hey, well, why? What's going on with this house? Like, why is it this house? Mm-hmm. The only connection we have is that the dude who owns the bank also happens to own this house.
0: Maybe it's better, rather than trying to cover things chronologically, just to go through, like, everyone who shows up at this house and why they're there. Because I think we're going to get confused otherwise.
1: Yeah, okay, so we have Miss Cornelia Van Gorder, uh, Miss Dale Ogden, Lizzie Allen, the butler, all those folks I've already explained. Corley Fleming is the owner of the banker who's gone missing slash announced dead in Mm -hmm. Colorado. Dr. Wells is his family doctor who also lives nearby and has come to the house to check up on the old lady because um, someone's trying to scare them out of the house.
0: We also see him earlier in the scene that establishes that Fleming's nephew Richard is a gambler and is having debt problems and stuff. Like, we know that those two guys know each other better yeah, in true. cahoots.
1: So then Brooks Bailey is the cashier who's wanted for questioning, um, and he also happens to be dating Miss Dale. And then there's Richard Fleming, the nephew, who shows up because he's looking for that money. Mm-hmm. And uh, then there's Detective Maletti, who is on the search for the bat from the big city, and he's followed the lead of the banker to his semi- house to see what's up with these people staying there. And then Detective Anderson, who is like the local county sheriff, who is our other comic relief, and he shows up because he was called by Miss Cornelia to investigate the haunting.
0: Yeah, and everyone sort of shows up one at a time, gradually overcomplicating the plot each time they do. The main thing is that they're all after this money, For various reasons. And so with all these characters in this house, you're left with this story where it's always just about like who's in the room at this point and who's kind of left to go do something else. And then after a character in the cast has left to go do something else, that's when we'll see either the bat or the shadow so that you're always guessing who one of these two masked men could possibly be Mm -hmm. as various shenanigans happen throughout the, the house.
1: Yeah, and uh, the last character who I didn't really mention is this guy. He shows up and he has no identification and he's beat up so he can't say who he is and can't really remember. But he shows up maybe halfway through yeah. uh, as kind of a, another misdirect What I really like about this movie is, Mm -hmm. like, it opens with a title card saying, hey, don't spoil this for anyone if you've already seen it.
0: It's like a warning to the audience about to see this movie not to go and tell anyone who the bad is.
1: And uh, you guys don't get that luxury (laughs) because we, we have to discuss it.
0: And, and this movie's a bajillion years old, and, you know, you're past the musical interlude. It's spoiler time.
1: <laughs> detective Moletti, who was the detective from the big city, turns out he's the man underneath the mask? He's the bat. Actually, maybe I'll back up.
0: Yeah, Yeah, I feel like we need to do these revelations in order rather than jumping to the end and then backtracking.
1: (laughs) So, uh, throughout running around the house and spooks happening and all that, we discovered that the man who kept calling the Shadow is actually Krille Fleming, the dude who owns the bank. Yes. Uh, he faked his death thanks to the help of Dr. Wells, his friend, and then stole money from the bank with a motive of, I don't really know.
0: Yeah, they, they don't really establish that, but they do establish that he was going to split the money with Dr. Wells, so I guess they're just shitty
1: people. So that's the shadow. The bat, sorry, were you going to say something?
0: I was going to say that some people don't make it out of this movie alive.
1: That's very true. Poor Richard Fleming.
0: Gets shot. Gets shot by the shadow. I mean, when we say this guy is the shadow, like he's got the fedora and the handkerchief and the black trench coat and the gun. And it's, it's worth saying that everyone in this movie has a gun. Every single character. <laughs> it is a requirement of being a character in this movie to have a gun. Detective uh, Anderson has two.
1: Yeah. <laughs> that are massive. And then when we get to revealing the bat, as soon as you take off the mask, it's Detective Moletti. Yes. The detective from the big city. Except, as the beat-up unknown guy explains, he's actually the detective who got beat up by the bat before he got there. The bat took the detective's identification so that he could sneak into the house and try to find things out that way. hmm that's that's the end. <laughs> yeah. It's really well constructed. Every little like nugget that's like put out throughout the film comes back to play from like the bear trap that the maid puts out which is as how they as a joke. Cap- as a joke, and that's how they capture him at the end. Yeah. To the old lady, the old lady. I should be more respectful of my favorite character. Ms. Cornelia like shooting at the maid's feet as a joke because she's kind of a bee <laughs> that gun missing a bullet is what leads uh detective Molady to think that Dale shot Richard or something like that like
0: yeah the the movie's very well structured in that way it's it's tough to like Do a plot summary because pretty much everything between everybody shows up at the house and they find the bat is a lot of this kind of running around and and going back and forth between rooms and little things here and there and twists of fate and all kinds of business and gags. Yeah. But it's worth saying that, you know, unlike in The Monster, all those gags contribute. Exactly. Um, so they all kind of, you know, you see the bat set up a trap for people and then it's like 20 minutes later that he uses the trap and and stuff like that. So so everything comes together and is a lot tighter. This movie's funnier than The Monster?
1: Oh, definitely. To me,
0: it's better shot than The Monster.
1: 100%. It's
0: more effectively thrilling than The Monster. The balance between the laughs and the thrills are handled a lot better, where the humor I actually found genuinely funny, and the thrills were genuinely thrilling, and the the pacing was much better. So I think that really helps everything.
1: Yeah, the monster paused the thrills in order to have the comedy.
0: It just didn't balance the two very well. The the monster was like a a feature-length skit. This, I think, really the most accurate way to describe The Bat is it's a feature-length, Episode of Scooby Doo. Yeah. Like a slightly less absurd version of Clue. Like sure. If if you like Clue, you'll like the bat, (laughs) right?
1: I loved how true to Gothic horror this movie was. Okay, yeah. I mean, Gothic horror literature, traditionally, doesn't have the comedy elements, Mm -hmm. but it has those Mr. X. It has the spookiness, like the ballroom scene in this movie.
0: That was never really explained, was it? It's just a comic bit, but like, you yeah. never not really explain why there's a ballroom where you cannot keep candles lit.
1: Exactly. That's the whole thing with gothic horror. With the misdirects, it's like, oh, well, maybe that could be explained. Someone was just like moving a vase around, except those candles st- kept going out. So mm-hmm. is it haunted? So that's a great scene to point to with gothic horror. Like you said, the comedy really served to support the, the scariness, the spookiness.
0: It sometimes felt like Roland West was making like a different movie than the one the cast was making. In the sense that his filmmaking is so moody, you know, and he's got this amazing use of light and shadow through the movie Mm -hmm. that he's, you know, that he's stolen 100% from German Expressionism. But like, and these cavernous sets and these amazing shots, like some of the compositions and the shot work in this movie is really incredible. And then the cast are making this, like, absurd, <laughs> like, inane comedy, right? Yeah. Um, but that being said, I think that the the contrast between, like, his moodiness and their antics ends up actually working in the movie's favor, because then when the threatening stuff happens, you know, when the bat shows up to threaten someone, or someone gets a pointed at them or whatever, it actually has some weight to it. Definitely. Like, that's often one of my problems with, comedies that mix in with other genres, like horror comedies, for example, is that the things that are supposed to have some threat and some menace end up falling flat because everything's a joke. Mm -hmm. And this movie does a really good job of, you know, when it's time to be menacing and when it's time to be exciting and thrilling, it hits the thrills, but when it's time to be funny, it hits the jokes. And like you said, they support each other.
1: What is kind of interesting is looking back, everything... Actually works with the twists. Yeah. Because remember when Maletti first is like, "Oh, are those the blueprints to the secret room? Or I wonder where the secret room would be." And yeah, no like, one's mentioned And I was like, "How would it. he know what like that there's a secret room?" Mm-hmm. And we joked that maybe there was a title card missing. But then there was also the point when Meletti went to the garage because of like hearing someone moaning, and then like that's never followed up. Mm-hmm. Like all of that contributes to it Mileti being the bat.
0: Yeah, and we were able to guess that Courtly Fleming was going to be the. Shadow pretty early on from other clues throughout the movie as well. So yeah. like the the thing is is that like the reveals are surprising, but they aren't out of nowhere. And when the story has to explain what's going on, it does a better job of it. You know, not like in the monster where when we finally learn what's going on, it's a big bag of what the fuck was that, right?
1: Yeah, I love how Ms. Cornelia is just like on it, mm. like just. I I said that I saw the bat over there so the detectives would go over there because here's what's going on, something's fishy going on, and she takes charge and, like...
0: Yeah, she's great. She's definitely great. Like, she's definitely, you know, a... She fits into that Miss Marple mold. You could quite easily see, like, Angela Lansbury playing her in, like, a modern (laughs) version of this, right? It feels to me like like I really loved what Roland West kind of brought to this movie. Uh, in terms of his stylizations, they add to me a lot of value to kind of spice up a story that if you shot it in a more flat normal kind of way I think would end up becoming too absurd with Mm. so many characters and they're all so ridiculous and we're going here and now we're going there and we're running here and there and everywhere and because he's able to find a way to shoot it in a way that every shot is so interesting to look at it keeps the energy up and the excitement up and it keeps you invested in the story like so much of this movie is people running up and down staircases and that could be so boring if you didn't shoot it well.
1: Confusing if you didn't shoot it well. Yeah. Like every part of this movie, I, it felt like a natural, like it made sense when a character went this way or that way. It wasn't yeah. like the tropey horror movies where the blonde just wanders off or something. It does a really good job of justifying the movements of the characters.
0: This feels like damning with faint praise, but I was surprised at how not tedious I found this movie.
1: Yeah, well, especially coming from the monster. Well, and even just with the plot
0: set up and with in the early moments of the film when all these characters keep coming to the mansion, it's like now there's this guy and this guy and this guy and this guy and here's why they want the money and stuff. And I was kind of sitting there going like, oh, this is going to get tedious. I'm going to get sick of this shit. But once everybody's kind of gathered together, the story kicks into high gear and he always keeps the movie moving in a way that each thing that happens is is sort of new and different. There's so many moments where I thought this movie was at its climax, and then it keeps going.
1: Yeah, but it didn't feel like...
0: It didn't wear out its welcome.
1: Yeah, yeah, that's a good way to put it. I also just like how all of the spooks we're coming from inside the house.
0: Ha, there's a yeah. lot of shots in this movie that are, you know, a character up against with their back to a door or a window. And then, like, that door or window slowly <gasps> opening and a hand kind of reaching out. Oh, I fucking um,
1: love that gag. I love it so much. I know you
0: do. The thing that makes this movie worth seeing, I think, is the fact that Roland West's style for the film makes it, like, just weird enough. Mm-hmm. Because, like... You know, you've got this kind of mystery in a big mansion, who's the killer, where's the money kind of plot. Um, and I don't know if I would be as into this if I was seeing it on stage. For sure. In a Broadway show. Because, like, there's so many cool things that Wes does with his lighting. Like, there's a scene where Dr. Wells is creeping up on Detective Maletti, And the, this house is, is huge. We, we cannot stress how big this house is enough. <laughs> I mean, it's all sets. But, like, Meletti's like, three giant cavernous living rooms back from Maletti, And Maletti's in foreground, like, sitting at a desk. And every time the doctor gets closer and moves through the room, he, like, turns off the light in that room so that it's all just pitch black by the time he's right behind him yeah or there's another scene where west does the like german expressionist nosferatu shot oh, yeah. of like the bat's shadow just on a wall the bat shadow reaches over and like closes a door That doesn't make any sense at all. Like, there's, like, the Bat's just some guy in a suit. Like, he's not supernatural. There's nothing like that in the movie. But in terms of the stylistics of the movie, the movie lets his shadow close a door instead of him doing it.
1: All the mood setting and Mr. but it's also still like, but is it supernatural? Gothic horror.
0: Yeah, there's, you know, everything's explained at the end except for all the things that aren't explained. Yeah. Speaking of stylistic things that don't make any sense... (laughs) There's a famous moment in this movie where you're like, oh, hey, it's the bat signal all the characters are in the living room. One of the living rooms. And they're all just gathered together and the lights have gone out in the house and they're all like huddled up against one another and all of a sudden a spotlight shines through the window with a a bat logo on it. And you're like oh shit it's the bat signal. And this spotlight its a big flashlight with a bat on it. And it moves across the room all the way around them? Like 360 degrees? And you're like if a light's coming from the window outside the house like it can't it can't move in a circle around them. That doesn't make any sense. But then they like go to the door because someone knocks at it and they open the door and the bat logo shines through the door and they're like oh my god it's the bat and it turns out it's like the doctor the doctor and it's like there was a moth on the headlight of his car yeah it's like that doesn't make any sense that doesn't explain anything that's ridiculous it's
1: so awesome i love it so much
0: i want to talk a little bit about the look of the bat
1: the creepiness of it
0: so he doesn't he acts a lot like Batman. He's got, like, a utility belt with, like, a grappling hook and, like, <laughs> batarangs. And, like, he, like, leaves people notes that he signs with a bat. And, like, he climbs up, like, ropes and stuff. But he doesn't really look like Batman. He's wearing, like, a, a big voluminous cloak. But it doesn't have, like, the wings. The most memorable thing about him is he's wearing a bat mask. And, like, Batman's mask looks like a bat in only the most abstract sense of the word. This guy's wearing just like if you took the head of a bat and you blew it up to like man size and like hollowed it out and cut some eye holes in it and stuck it on a dude's head. Like that's what this guy looks like. Like it 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 looks it reminds me of like the rabbit mask from Donnie Darko. <laughs> yeah! Uh, only, the, the
1: creepy factor to it too. Yeah
0: only it's got fangs and the mouth moves. <laughs> yeah yeah it it's definitely got like a good taste of that early twentieth century creepiness that like because people just didn't know how to make like
1: things, things
0: that, that weren't, weren't creepy, creepy. <laughs> yeah like essentially, the bat is Batman in his m o he's just super villain Batman, yeah, he's just a Batman uh, who steals things, really he's more like catwoman he's he's Batman <laughs> yeah, yeah. if he was catwoman,
1: yeah, stealing jewels and all that,
0: yeah go through skylights and junk. <laughs> The performances were pretty good. Nobody's, like, walking home with an Oscar out of this movie. The funny characters were funny, and the mysterious characters were mysterious. And the thing about this movie is there's a lot of characters, if you look at them in isolation, you'll go, like, oh, we didn't really need that guy, because there's so many extraneous people in this movie. But what makes it work is all of them together, providing the right amount of confusion. Yeah. I'm gonna I'm gonna throw out, like, a weird opinion. Okay. I feel like, you know, we're saying the fact that we... We felt like the comic relief didn't wear out its welcome because it didn't push things too far to that point where you're, like, sick of the joke or tired of the joke or offended. I feel like the reason that doesn't happen is because there's too many characters, right? Like, if there was just, say, Dale and Miss Cornelia and Bill the butler, there'd be way more racism. Or if it was just, like, Dale and Miss Cornelia and... Detective Anderson, there'd be way more, oh, what an idiot he is, jokes. But because there's like 50 characters, we can maybe only really tell each character's joke like once or twice, so they never really quite go to that place where you're like, yeah, I
1: get it. Do you have anything else to say about the movie? Because I have a question for you. Okay. Clearly, we agree that this movie is well made and that it balances the comedy and horror but how much do we hold comedy against its status as a horror film?
0: So... Like, do we at all? Should we? Y- yeah, I I definitely... The next thing I want to talk about is definitely this. This idea of, like, what genre is this movie? Mm-hmm. If you go back to our episode on The Monster, we talked about how after we saw that movie, we said, you know, it's definitely a slapstick comedy, but it's got these horror elements. And because they're elements that get expanded on in later movies... You know, it's an important movie to the development of horror as a genre and blah, 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 blah. Yeah. This movie, it's funnier, it's, it's better. I think it's less of a horror film than The Monster was. Mm. Because I don't think this movie's really horror at all. It's got some scary bits and certainly it's got some spookiness. But I don't think even the bits that are scary or spooky mean it's a horror film any more than scary or spooky bits in a drama would make it a horror film. I think this film's a thriller, and I know that those two genres of thriller and horror sometimes have a very, like, thin line between them, Mm -hmm. but if you go back to episode one, we sort of talk about that distinction. The reason I say this is thriller is for a couple reasons. One is that we have heroes who are out to stop a villain. Mm -hmm. We've got this villain, the Bat, and we've got detectives and amateur detectives and badass old ladies who are out to stop the Bat, and they stop him. Also, we don't really have the horror scenarios of like, oh, this character is screwed, and we can just sit there and watch them be screwed. They're more like the suspenseful scenarios you get from a thriller of being on the edge of your seat going, how are they going to get out of this one? Hmm. You know, this movie felt almost like a a cliffhanger serial, but it's just (laughs) one movie. It's not like four hours long. Yeah. And... The goals of the scenes that are not comedic, when the movie's not trying to make us laugh, I don't think it's trying to make us afraid either. I think it's more just trying to excite us and thrill us. So I would say that this is a thriller comedy, not a horror comedy. So it's, it's not so much that I feel like I'm holding the comedy against it. I'm just saying the bits that aren't comedy aren't horror either. I think they're they're more of a thriller.
1: So I disagree.
0: Okay, great.
1: Like, I definitely see where you're coming from. The only way that they stop the bat is because of the happenstance of this bear trap. Yeah if the bat had gotten away, like, they would have been survivors. Like, people were being killed in the mansion, right? Like, they survived getting through that. Dale almost got killed by the bat trying to get the safe combination out of her, right? And that scene in particular is, like, incredibly horrific because the bat walking in on the camera in a very similar way to Lon Chaney in The Monster, to John Barrymore in Jekyll and Hyde, showing the really grotesque mask And she's freaking out. Mm -hmm. And then we see the bat and the shadow fight and, like, guns going off. And she's witness to a murder.
0: Yeah. To the second murder of the (sighs) night. But I don't think that makes this horror any more than any of that stuff makes Silence of the Lambs horror. And I think, you know, a movie like Silence of the Lambs is a thriller, even though horrific things are happening around Clarice Starling and she gets into situations where the hair is standing on the back of your neck as you watch them and horrific stuff's happening. You know, that movie's... I don't think really a horror movie is much as a thriller movie. And I think that the Bat never feels like the kind of unstoppable, horrific force that some of these other villains we've run into are. Like, he's definitely competent and good at what he's doing and dangerous, you know. But a dangerous villain doesn't necessarily make a horror monster. And I never feel like the characters are as out of their depth as they usually are in a horror movie. Like, even going back to the monster, right? Like, the monster was... a town bumpkin and a shop girl and a dandy trapped in this house with this madman you know the the characters in the bat feel like a little bit more competent and a little bit more capable and maybe it's the fact that they outnumber the villains like the monster the the characters were certainly outnumbered and here we've got like seven good guys and two bad guys but I never quite felt that sense of like they're screwed if the bat gets his way so much as just like You know, if the bat gets his way, he's going to steal some money and some people have died along the way, but like, how is that different from like a cop movie, right? I didn't really feel the the horror in it. I do agree, though. I totally agree with you about that scene with the bat and Dale, and that's certainly where this movie, you know, reaches up for that horror mood Mm. the most strongly, but I don't think you can genre categorize a movie just on one scene.
1: Well, I I would argue that it's throughout the entire movie. The aesthetics and mise-en-scene and everything work to support it. Mm-hmm. But let me let me go to the other scene um, that we kind of highlighted earlier, where the doctor is creeping up on Dr. Moretti, right? Like that's impending doom. Mm-hmm. The light coming down and everything, and vicious like three whacks to the head. Mm-hmm. Like, and I remember feeling very feeling very jarred mm-hmm. by the violence. that that was there Mm -hmm. um and I I don't know if it was just the way it was shot and with like a close-up on the doctor's face or what but like to me that's an example of that fear of like all these people and you don't really know who you can trust
0: sure sure I see what you're saying and I do agree that this movie has tropes and some elements and some calling cards of a horror film but All of my narrative analysis brain is saying this isn't horror or this isn't horror comedy. This is a thriller comedy. That being said, like, I don't dismiss any of the stuff you've said. Mm -hmm. You're right about that stuff. It doesn't weight as strongly towards genre determination for me as it does for you. Because you're looking at, I think, a lot of feeling of, like, mood. And I'm looking at, like narrative structure, I guess you could say, and in the genre determination. I do think like either way, it should go on the list.
1: Okay, good.
0: I think the movie belongs on the list, but I just wanted it to be on the record that if we're talking about, you know, the horror versus thriller distinction, I think this leans more towards thriller than it does horror, despite a lot of spookiness.
1: Cool. I I think that's a good compromise to come to. Mm -hmm. because like I was thinking about what is what's scary in this movie Mm -hmm. like Phantom Carriage is at the very top (laughs) because poverty is the scary thing right Uh, in this movie it's, it's a bit of that conspiracy it's this guy going around killing indiscriminately for like a reason that, like, you might not understand. There's so many people <laughs> with their own intentions. Yeah. But it, it did kind of ring back to the monster for me. That movie's scary was this crazy dude in the house uh-huh. versus a movie like Phantom Carriage, which has this morality tale to it or, or some kind of, like, personified thing scaring people.
0: Yeah, there's no, like, big allegorical mm. fear here. I'll run something by you though. I do not want to sound like I'm defending the monster over this movie. This is a better movie by far, but if we're talking about this horror versus thriller distinction, the fears in this movie, where the fear is coming from is similar, right? You're in a house with this crazy person who's dangerous. In the monster, it's his house. You're trapped in there with this guy, and the guy who you're afraid of is the one with all the power in the situation. In The Bad, it's reversed. This is our house, and he's a home invader. And I think that makes, even though The Monster's a sillier and way less effective film, that on paper makes Lon Chaney's character more frightening. Because you have less power. The less power you have in a situation, the scarier it is.
1: But at the same time, they're guests in the summer home, right? Mm-hmm. It has all of these secret passages that they have no idea That's about, true. right? That's true. Whereas, like, the shadow, obviously, because it's actually the dude's house. But even the bat seems to know where some of these things are, right?
0: Mostly because he's been following the shadow all night.
1: <laughs> yeah, but still even though they, uh, both this film and the monster have that feeling of like, yeah, they're here to make money, like, they're being professional about it, whatever, but mm-hmm. they're, they're it's to, like, make something entertaining yeah. and make money. Clearly, West still came for that creative outlet and is trying to do something. It might not be for thematic reasons, like we've noticed with, like, again, to point to the number one on the list, Phantom Carriage, mm-hmm. but it's still trying to do something, whereas the monster was the trial run, like you said earlier in the beginning, but clearly needed to do that trial run in order to get this very amazingly constructed film.
0: I think that the the central difference between the two is probably that like I mean I've not seen either the original play of the monster or the bat but looking at these two films and knowing that they're directed by the same guy I feel like the X factor has to be that the bats probably just a better play. Like the, the very source, because
1: like the monster at uh, play was just a cash in.
0: Yeah, and so I feel like you know the bat as the original that you know inspired all of this. Like he's working with stronger source material mm. this time around. I'm not sold on the idea of the bat being a a very strong contender in the horror genre, but I think it's got enough that we can put it on the list, especially because the monster's on the list. Like, I feel like the monster being on the list opens the list up to having the bat on the list, right? Cool. So let's look at, if you're ready, where we want to put this on the list. Cool. So did you have a a range that you were looking at?
1: So I was looking around Student of Prague, which is currently sitting. (gasps) (laughs) You laughed because it's so high, but no, hear me out. Okay, so Student of Prague is around number six. Uh Uh-huh. This is around the highest, I would put it. Okay. But I think, honestly, I would put it between Student of Frog and Eerie Tales.
0: Okay. <laughs> what's, what's the lowest you're willing to go?
1: No, I think it needs to go at least above Genuina. Oh,
0: man. Okay. You
1: were, you were looking lower? Oh, yeah. Not Wolfblood
0: low. No, not Wolfblood low. Oh, God, no. H- hear me out. Okay. I enjoyed the bat. It was a good time. I didn't enjoy it as much as you. You enjoyed it quite a bit, but I did enjoy it. But it's got that comedy. It's not really much of a horror film. I think it's even less of a horror film than you think it is, you know, where I think it's this thriller. If I was ranking the all-time best horror movies, like, I'm not gonna put it very high because this isn't, you know, as we've said a few times, like, the list isn't best movie, it's best horror movie. I look at where you're seeing it on the list and like I can't say that this movie to me is a better horror film than Eerie Tales or Genuina or Sealed Room or even that original Frankenstein. I do think it's better than The Monster. I think just on its quality level where I'm looking on the list quite a bit lower than you but I think this is still pretty high for what it is. (laughs) I thought I was being generous with how high I went until I heard where you were thinking.
1: Oh, no. Um,
0: I was going to put it under the John Barrymore Jekyll and Hyde from 1920 and above the James Cruise Jekyll and Hyde from 1912 and just break those two up. That was the spot in the list where I said, I can't say this is a better horror movie than Jekyll and Hyde. You know, I could say, is this a better horror movie than The Golem? Yes, because the bat's actually scary. (laughs) Is this a better horror movie than Avenging Conscience? Yes, because the events in it actually happened and weren't just a fever dream. (laughs) Um, You know, is this a better horror movie than the James Cruise Jekyll and Hyde? Yes, because James Cruise is not very scary in that movie at all. Is this a better horror movie than the John Barrymore Jekyll and Hyde? No, because the John Barrymore Jekyll and Hyde isn't trying to make us laugh with goofs. So that's kind of where I ended up.
1: Is there a movie that the comedy doesn't undercut the horror for you?
0: There's so many movies. you mean on the list already or to come?
1: Well, I just mean like in general. Like I'm trying to figure out how much comedy undercuts horror for us.
0: If you go back to episode one, you know, I talked about my definition of a horror film being that the movie's primary emotional goal is to make an audience feel fear. So I think that you can have comic relief in a horror movie, but if I start to feel like the primary goal is to make me laugh with a few scares along the way, that's a comedy with horror elements, not the reverse. Like, a good example, I think... And, you know, we'll get to it eventually is maybe like the Bela Lugosi Dracula, which has a couple of comic relief characters, including like a maid who freaks out at stuff and like a a cockney janitor who has a bunch of goofy lines. But like, I don't feel like they're the stars of the picture. I don't feel like they are the focus. And the horror stuff in that movie is scarier than that stuff is funny, like it's outweighed. Even though it's a good thing that the horror and the comedy in The Bat are so well balanced, it's that balance that makes me say I can't really in good conscience call this a horror film because the, the balance is even enough that it doesn't really do it for me in terms of defining it on that genre scale the bat needed to be scarier. Just throwing this out there, but, like, let's say if everyone was locked in the house somehow and the bat was more of a serial killer figure who was, you know, killing them off one by one for some reason, then that's horror, rather than just, like, you happen to be in this house with this guy, he's after some money that's hidden there somewhere, if you really wanted to, you could just leave until he got the money and left and then go back to enjoy your vacation, you know? But,
1: I mean, like, he burns that giant garage down. Sure. Like, so what, at what point will he stop to get that money, right? Like, like he's clearly going to go to great length. Sure, so just
0: leave it. and let him have it. Like, that's what I'm saying. Like, I'm not undercutting what's in the movie. I'm just saying the movie didn't quite go far enough to me for me to really feel horrified by the bat. So that's why I, I ended up in that place, was I was like, this is not scarier than Jekyll and Hyde, because Jekyll and Hyde was serious in its intentions. And I mean, there's a few films under this spot on the list that were series two, but The Bat's a good enough movie that it, it pushes that high. But that's, that sort of was the high spot that I was looking for. Is there a spot where maybe we can, we can maybe compromise?
1: Well, what's above the Barrymore, Jekyll and Hyde?
0: So the next film up is the Thomas Edison Frankenstein short that had that f- weird Fight Club ending and the monster being assembled in reverse motion. Above that is D.W. Griffith's The Sealed Room, where we had to sit and watch people suffocate, uh, and then Genoena and Eerie Tales, and then Student of Prague, and that's about where you were thinking. You know, I think back to Eerie Tales, and it's got that kind of goofy final segment, but, like, that first segment with the plague, and then, like, the next one after that with the hand and stuff, like... Yeah. You know, those were quite scary. Genuine is a mess, but, like, it's trying.
1: yeah. What would you say to around the Sealed Room?
0: It's, it's tough for me because that, that scene in the Sealed Room of having to watch those people suffocate, like, still really gets to me. Other than that, you know, we keep looking at this list and going, how is the Sealed Room this high? Yeah. And then with the Bat... It's so hard to judge, too, because I think Sealed Room's the highest short film.
1: It is, yeah. On
0: the list, it's just managed to, like, survive this long all the way (laughs) from episode one. And The Bat's this big, long film. You know, and earlier I was saying to you, like, I don't think the one or two scenes that are really horror balance out the rest of the film that isn't for me. But then if I'm comparing it to Sealed Room, which is a movie that's two scenes long, and one's horror and one's romance, like, does the amount of horror in the Bat balance out now? Like, um... (laughs) I could be talked into higher than The Sealed Room just because The Bat's a feature film and therefore, like, by a stopwatch test has more <laughs> horror in it than Sealed Room, if not by a percentage test. But I don't think I can put it higher than Genoena, even though totally agree that The Bat is a better-made film than Genoena, which is a mess. Genoina is trying to be a horror film, and The Bat is really more just trying to, like, Thrill thrilling audience with a few thrills and a few laughs so that, you know, you come out of the theater feeling a bit more alive and, and having eaten some more popcorn.
1: Why is the Barrymore Jekyll and Hyde so low?
0: I don't remember. <laughs> that episode was a while ago, and I don't remember why we ended up putting it that low. I do know that, like, we... I felt that movie took way too long to kind of get where it was going, mm. you know, oh, and yeah. it spent way too much time setting things up and the setup didn't really make much sense. It ended up going that low, I think, because it wasn't a very good Jekyll and Hyde movie, but it was the best Jekyll and Hyde movie we had, you know, and I think we, we liked Frankenstein and Sealed Room more. We just liked them more as movies.
1: Okay. Yeah. Um, but
0: if you want to put the bat at number nine, I will, I will compromise to that.
1: Okay, let's do that.
0: So entering the list at number nine, surprisingly cracking the top ten, is The Bat from 1926 by Roland West.
1: So above Sealed Room, below Genuina. Correct. Yeah, I really recommend people check this movie out because it is a fun time. I really did enjoy this. Mm-hmm. If you want to see the version we saw, you can go to our website, screamscenepodcast.tumblr.com. You can find the YouTube playlist there. You can also find the list where all of these movies are listed. And you can also, you know, if you're up for it, submit an appeal through our ask box there. If you don't want to look at Tumblr, you can also email us at screamscenepodcast at gmail.com. Or just find us on Twitter At underscore scream scene. We update every Wednesday on SoundCloud and on iTunes, and it'd be great if you could leave us a review or comment. Uh, Reviews on iTunes are how other folks can find the show, so please uh, review us and uh, help spread the good word. So what are we watching next week, Ben?
0: Next week, we're watching something a little weird. I don't know a ton about it. It's called The Magician. It's an American horror film from 1926 from MGM, but it stars our good friend, Paul Wegener. And this film was considered lost for a very, very long time. Oh. Has only been commercially available on home video since 2011. Oh. Uh, before that was a lost film. So I, I don't know a lot about it, but it's sure to be something interesting.
1: Yeah, well, Paul Wiener always does something good. Mm -hmm. Tune in next week and we'll be reviewing The Magician. Thanks so much for listening, everyone.
0: See you next week, creatures of the night. Bye.
1: Bye.